I think back over, over my career and part of what's made me successful is, is being scrappy and always looking for opportunities. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Now here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam A. Adams. And I'm excited about today's episode because as many of you know, a lot of times when I'm buying my properties, I very intentionally decide my hold period is going to be about five years. I wouldn't call that long-term at all. I would call that fairly short-term. Of course, it's longer than you fix and flippers who are uh, intentionally trying to get rid of it in, in five months. But with um, real estate, there's multiple different kinds of strategies out there. And I want to share with you just who I have on my show with, with us right now is Preston Walls. Preston um, has a property management company that's vertically integrated with his actual um, ownership. So right now they're managing, and I think about two-thirds of these they own, they're managing about 70 different properties, which add up to about $300 million in value. And what we're going to discuss today is why his strategy is to hold for the long period. So we're going to talk about the benefits of holding for longer than this five years. And we're going to dive into, you know, how he got here. He started around the same time I started, 2008-ish. And um, it sounds like we both uh, have a few things that we can agree on within that 2008. And I'm excited to just hear your point of view, Preston. Uh, Excited to just kind of dive into that and understand that there's multiple ways to invest in real estate. And as I understand it, you're doing some development as well. So give us the short rundown of the bio that I missed. And maybe if you can talk a bit about the development projects that you're working on right now, and then we'll get into some more questions. You bet. Great. Adam, thanks for having me on the show. I, I love, love your podcast, love uh, the guests you have, and love what you're doing here. Um, but yeah, to, to, uh, to jump in a little bit more of my background, I, I started in real estate in 2002. My father and I worked together from 2002 to 2008. We built a couple of buildings together during that time. Um, the one finished in 2008. It was a uh, 42-unit mixed-use building in Seattle. And it was, it was a great way to just learn, learn a skill, learn a trade from, from a parent. It, it seems, uh, seems outdated in this, this day and age, but uh, it, was, it was really a good, good learning experience for me to see everything that goes into putting a development deal together from acquiring the land to entitlements, working with architects, designing it, and then the construction process through lease up and financing. So he, he retired at the end of that, that project. Um, just the, uh, the stress of uh, city politics and uh, getting, getting through the entitlement process. He'd, uh, he'd had enough at that point. And so I've been, uh, been on my own since then. And um, yeah, enjoying it. But you, you'd ask about long-term ownership and, you know, long-term ownership has been um, a, a core principle of mine uh, for <laughs> as long as I can remember. Um, it, uh, 
it started, it started with stocks and stock ownership. Um, I, I kind of learned the investment principles, uh, from, from my parents. And, uh, I had a great aunt who was, uh, very invested in, in real estate and, um, with her, her help, I opened a brokerage account when I turned 18 and I still own the shares, um, that I purchased when I, when I turned 18 in that account. Um, I, the, the compounding, the compounding effect of owning something for a long time and especially with real estate, um, transaction costs are significant. Uh, and you know, you can, you can 1031 around the, the taxes to some extent, but you, you still have uh, significant brokerage costs and excise tax when you transact. Uh, so I, I view transaction costs as, as cost prohibitive. Um, and my, my mechanism, my way of, of, extracting the capital out rather than selling is, is through refinancing. So I have a, a pretty active, uh, refinance, um, campaign. So probably every three to four years on each property, I'll go, go through and, uh, essentially harvest the equity out of that building through refinance and take that equity and roll it into another project. Okay. Okay. So, um, Let's let's go into just a couple of projects that you've done this with um, over the years since 2002 when you first got into real estate. Um, you felt strongly about the compound effect. You felt strongly about holding property for a long time. One of the benefits that you mentioned was that you can actually refinance out some of that money. Um, so I just want to talk about a project or two. Uh, you choose which ones that you refied out and I'm curious, like, what did you do with the money? Where did, did you put it into another investment? Um, was that, a, was that tax free when you took out the money from those projects or did you have to pay a whole bunch of tax and, um, and basically just show us how that's helped you scale your business. Sure. So a, a typical, typical project for me, um, I will, I'll purchase a building, um, a value add building that I can add another unit or units to, uh, reconfigure the existing interior space to, uh, densify it, to make, make the building more valuable, um, either through more people being, being able to, to live there and spread the rent around and, and make it more affordable for those, those individuals. Uh, and from a, a lending standpoint, that that requires uh, more of a community bank, local bank to to underwrite that and and look at it. So there's a construction renovation bridge loan that that goes in uh, to get it acquired and get the the renovation work done. And then once it's stabilized, work's done, uh, it's fully occupied and cash flowing, and it's more of a, a commodity loan can cash out the, the original lender on that, take some cash out due to the, uh, the increased value from, uh, from the improvements. And then, yeah, I, I take those cash out proceeds and I use that as the down payment on 
another project and that money continues working in a different direction. And then that, that asset continues to, to appreciate rents grow, rents go up, um, building appreciates in three, four years. Once the, the prepay burns off from the first loan, um, it's available to, to refinance. There's more equity in the, in the property than um, refinance it again, take some cash out and use that, that cash out for, uh, for another, another down payment, on another, another property. Okay. So, so when you, when you do a refi, what's the, what's like the most you've taken out of a house at, or a property um, in one single refinance? Well, in, in growth markets or appreciating markets, uh, cap rates tend to be low. And so loan to values is not your constraint. It's, it's a debt service coverage ratio. So, uh, kind of one, one twenty is a pretty aggressive, uh, aggressive number, which is translating to 60, 67, 68% loan to value. So that's, that's kind of the, the upper end that you can get to at some points it's gotten up to low seventies, but that's kind of the range. So when you say 120, are you talking about a 1.2 debt service coverage ratio or 120,000? A debt service coverage ratio. Okay. So what's the most amount that you've pulled out of one property? Not talking about DSCR specifically, just like it was it a hundred thousand, was it a million, was it twenty thousand? Uh, I uh, I I just uh, I refinanced uh, a property this week, um, paid off a um, eight hundred thousand dollar line of credit and have a new $1.9 million line of credit. So that's essentially $1.1 million in available credit that, that came, came to me. Yeah. And so, are, when this happens, are you buying, are you buying Ferraris or Porsches or, or what are you, what are you putting that money into usually? It, uh, well, I, I wish that, uh, a Ferrari or Porsche can be a cash flow investment. But, <laughs> uh, it uh, the bulk of it goes back into long term investments. I I enjoy I enjoy kind of rolling this this snowball uh, down the hill and and seeing how much momentum it can get okay. on its own. I'm I'm glad we got into that, even if it felt a little uncomfortable for a second there, because the, I feel like I've met thousands and thousands of real estate investors or um, people that want to get into real estate investing. So with my meetups and my real estate conferences that I host and this podcast, I'm always meeting people. And I feel like there's so many people that are doing real estate and they make their first uh, twenty or forty thousand, and they go out and buy a used uh, Mercedes, and um, and then they make their next uh, twenty or forty or a hundred thousand, and then um, they put a, a down payment on the next asset. 
um, that might not be a cash flowing asset. So I guess in Robert Kiyosaki's term, it's not an asset. It's a liability, right? Because it's just something costs costs you money. Um, but your mindset's a little bit different. It's really interesting to me uh, because I, go ahead, go ahead. I I have never owned a new car. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. It, and it, it's making me think of this. Um, I wish that I had it right in front of me, but I wasn't thinking that this is where the conversation would go. But um, there is some, there are some children that they were put in front of like a candy bar and they said, hey, this is yours. And then they said, hey, I need to leave the room. But hey, if you don't eat that candy bar, when I get back, I'm going to give you a second candy bar. Okay, I can't. I think I read this in like um, the one thing. I think that's probably where I read about this. Um, but the the specific situation is most of the kids ate the candy bar. Most of the kids like they wanted it right now. They wanted to feel good now. They weren't willing to kind of do the next thing. And it stays on topic with what you and I are talking about today, Preston, with what you're trying to share with the audience of this new way of thinking is number one, uh, you're investing for the long term. Even me, when I'm, when I'm uh, selling at five years, that's not the long term. That's not the down the road forever play. And there's something to be said about people who have the ability to delay that gratification, like those children with the candy bars um, and like with those friends that I have that are not in a great place financially, but they had that much in cash and their thought was, oh, I need to buy a fancy car, a brand new car. I need to buy, you know, a bigger house. I need to look really um, successful. Yeah. That delayed gratification that you're talking about is, is really what I think this episode's all about. And I love so, playing the candy bar game. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> I, I see it all the time too, right? You, you have a building, let's say you've owned it for three or four years. You've got some appreciation out of it. Your options are sell it and get, say, 500000 out of it or refinance it, leave, leave that portion of equity in and get 200000 out of it, right? Which is better, 500000 and not having your golden goose anymore or taking a smaller, smaller amount of that, the 2000 continuing to earn the cash flow from it, holding, holding on to it for a few more years until you can, can repeat the process again. It's, it, it's tempting to take the larger number sooner, but in, in my experience, it's, it's always paid off to wait, delay and, let the market take care of you through appreciation. Okay. Do you have any tips? Because you uh, seem to do this better than most of the people that I have on the show. Um, Delay the gratification. Take that second candy bar when she gets back. um, To take out that money. And instead of going and buying a fancy car to show everybody how rich you are, you, you buy another asset and you just keep, letting that slowly compound over time where you're managing 70 different properties right now, uh, 300 million in assets, not something that a lot of my friends or acquaintances 
that um, own a Ferrari or own a Porsche could say. They just they can't say what you can say is that they legitimately are investing and, and rolling that in. And all I, what I think we need to pull out of you right now is if you could give just a few tips, tricks, and strategies to that kid with the can, in, sitting in front of the candy bar right now or sitting in front of the Porsche right now, um, knowing that they could easily buy it, they have the cash, but what do you say to them to help them to prolong this delay, this gratification? I, I mean, I, I think back over, over my career and part of what's made me successful is, is being scrappy and always looking for opportunities, right? If, if you have assets that, that aren't cash flowing, turn them into cash flow assets, right? If you, if you have this, this nice car that you're only driving half the time, find a way to uh, lease it out short term uh, to, to other people that might want it. Uh, find, uh, yeah, find, find business routes that, that can generate income that you can, can reinvest, uh, into cash flow producing assets. Cause ultimately, I mean, we, we all want to be passive investors and, and to be able to, to, uh, disassociate from, from the day to day and, then uh, on our lives from from the beach and we'll uh we'll get there eventually but uh i gotta gotta enjoy the ride of getting there yeah well i my mind's open i love this and i'm sure that there's a lot of people listening that want to that want to invest passively with somebody who who is scrappy who um who knows why not to buy a brand new car? Because they lose so much money in the very, very beginning. Because there's there's um, syndicators that are flashy, like I got a Ferrari or whatever. And in my mind, that's a that's a the opposite of conservative. And if they're if they're like that with their regular spending, maybe when they're buying um, when they're buying these apartments, maybe they're making bad decisions on what to buy and when to buy it, but someone who's has a good track record of, of doing it the way that you're saying, I think is a, a, a way that can resonate with a lot of conservative passive investors. Don't you say? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not a full-time syndicator. Um, I invest uh, for my own account. I, I buy buildings entirely my, myself. I, I buy buildings for, for family members. Uh, so I have a lot of different ownership structures, but I just, I love, I love doing deals. I love buying buildings, assets that make sense. And, you know, one, one challenge, one just core, core challenge of the syndication business is there, there, there's a lot of potential to, to create fees in it. And, you know, this, this conflict exists are we are we doing are we doing this deal to generate the fees? Or are we doing it because it's a great investment? And you know it it can be both, but I, I'm I'm sensitive to that kind of feedback. And one way that I've found around it is I'm just gonna hold this. I plan to hold this asset for a long time. And if if you are an investor that that want to be in this, you need to be on board with. 
having no fixed end date to this investment. Okay. And that's the opposite of what we share. We are always like, we're out in five years. Like we know we're going to sell. Um, you know, it, it's just, I love, I've learned a lot from you today. Uh, I think it's fun to break, to pick people's brains that, that, um, naturally are different than yours. And so I've learned a lot. I hope the listener learned a lot, um, as well. But before we go, because there's all sorts of kinds of uh, listeners, and so some of the listeners are, you know, wanting to learn the compound effect and delayed gratification, but there, I also have a couple of listeners who uh, want to syndicate, and I know that you have done some syndication. You do some on your own. I know you've got a couple of properties right now that are bigger. They're like 50, 60 units that you're doing on your own without syndicating. Um, but you're also really good at attracting capital. So if you don't mind, if I switch things around right before we leave, I'm going to ask you right after the break, um, how you're sourcing investors for your syndication. So we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to learn how Preston is sourcing his investors for his deals. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Adam Adams, and I want to take a second to say thank you to one of our sponsors. Now, if you've tried to earn a full-time income flipping houses the traditional way, you know it takes a lot of money. Putting 10 or 20% down on each house adds up fast. Plus, you could lose hundreds of thousands of dollars if you get caught holding a few houses when the market crashes. Well, what if I told you that there was a better way to flip houses, a way that didn't require much upfront capital, a way that made it easy to find more fix and flip deals than you could even handle, and best of all, a way that insulated you from losing all your money in a market crash. Well, I'm here to tell you that there is a simple way to quit your job and flip houses full-time. It's called Fix and List Deal. Eric Young used the strategy to quit his job, double his income, and become a self-made house flipper in less than a year. Eric's a real estate investor located in Denver, and he's perfected the Fix and List strategy over the last four years, and he's got a free giveaway. Learn how you can implement the Fix and List strategy by watching Eric's free video lessons at fixandlistsecrets.com. It may just change your life. And we're back with Preston, the conservative investor, Walls, right? Walls. Am yeah. I saying it wrong? You got it. I'm. I'm. Just I'm questioning the myself. Conservative investor part. Okay. Okay. He's laughing, so I'm thinking I did something wrong. Oh no! I'm so self-conscious. I don't I, know why. I. Uh, you know, these these buildings they they feel like like risky assets, and uh, especially new construction. There's there's some risk in uh, taking on a development project. So so to be the the conservative investor, it's, it's uh, <laughs> good. Good change. Preston, the calculated risk taker, Walls. Calculated risk rather than, rather than, okay, perfect. All right. I promised before we got, went into the break, I promised that we're going to have you teach us some strategies so that we can get more passive investors because you've been able to do a good job at that. So why don't you break it down for us and then we'll figure out how do people find you, how to get a hold of you. But first, what's the secret sauce to getting passive investors on board? Yeah, so three steps. One, friends and family. Use your immediate network to your maximum extent. Two, uh, once, you, once you've, you've utilized that um, all you can or exhausted it, expand your network 
expand the ways people can get to know you and uh, do it through producing content, um, through kind of extended networking, meetups, um, podcasts, blogs, etc. And then the third, the third way that's been extraordinarily effective for me, uh, but I, I understand you need you need some scale to get there. Uh, is having having someone I, I hired investor relations person who kind of manages uh, manages the uh, the database of, of potential investors and does a far better job at uh, communicating and and keeping those those leads warm and informed on what's going on and what's in the pipeline and updates on existing deals. So, so the, uh, the communication, cause as you, as you grow and, and scale your, your time gets uh, spent in different directions and, and you need to, to do a better job with, with the investor relations communication piece. All right. I love it. So let me see if I can, I didn't take notes physically, but uh, step one was work with your friends and family. Yes. Step two was uh, podcasts, meetups, um, you know, start networking with people outside of the friends and family. And step three, is that where you're having an investor relations person? Right. Outsource okay. it. Outsource, outsource your investor relations. Um, now, I think we have just a minute or two available to be able to dive deeper into um, understanding what your investor relations do- person does. Like, and I think that that would be super valuable to me and, and anyone listening um, because I'm actually personally already thinking about hiring a specific investor relations person. So I know it'll benefit me and my business, what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, what do you have? I, I think you said it was a her. Uh, him, Brad. Him. Uh, what do you have him? What do you have Brad do? So he's, he's producing uh, monthly recaps at all the, the projects so newsletters that are project specific. Here's what here's what's happening at the building. Here's where construction's at. We have some Instagram pages for um, the the larger construction projects. Uh, so updating and posting to those, and then developing new investor contacts, uh, reaching out to people, following up, uh, hosting events, going to other people's events, uh, doing building walkthroughs at at projects that are ongoing. That's, that's kind of the, the bulk of it. I love it. Awesome stuff. Well, Preston, how do people find you? How do they reach out to you and get a hold of you? Yeah, our uh, uh, syndication page is wallspropertygroupre.com and the, the property management site is wallspropertymanagement.com. Either way, you can find me there. Walls Property RE or Walls Property Management. Dot com. Wallspropertymanagement.com or wallspropertygroupre.com. Wallspropertygroupre.com. And don't worry if you're as confused as I was. Those two links are already in the show notes. So all you got to do is scroll down and there they are. You can click on either one that you like and uh, you don't have to memorize it. So when you get done driving, pull over, click the link and you can actually follow and get a hold of Preston Walls and his groups, either Walls Property Group or Walls Property Management. Either way, you're going to succeed. I appreciate you listening. And Preston, thanks for coming on. Thank you for opening up and letting us know a new way of thinking outside of what the conventional syndicator 
does. Um, I love it. It's good stuff. Well, I, thank you, Adam. Thanks for putting the show on. I, I love what you're doing. I appreciate you. I will let you go. But until next time, my friend, think outside the box. It's an honor to have you as a listener. And I just wanted to say thank you. I also wanted to thank our sponsor, FixingListSecrets.com, where they have that free video lesson. In that video lesson, you're going to learn never to struggle again to find or fund your next fix and flip deal. You're going to learn how to flip houses without taking out a mortgage. So now you can flip houses as your full-time income and not lose any money in a market crash. There's a simple way to flip houses full-time, and that is to visit FixingListSecrets.com.